Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R, and thanks to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now until we hand over to either at midday. And on the line with me are some of my favorite co-hosts. Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. We know you say that to all your co-hosts, but we'll pretend that, you know, we'll pretend that we're special. Thank oh, you. There's Good a couple. Morning. There's a couple I just really don't like. Um, speaking of which, uh, Chris KP, good morning. Yes, I was thinking, actually, Jen, the thing is that, you know, I know he says it to everybody too, but the thing is, it happens to be true in our case, and we know that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Good point. Mm. Good point, Chris. I'll, I'll hold on to that in my darkest days. Yeah, I think the, te- <laughs> the team said that last week too. Uh, Dr. Ewan. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Good to see you, pal. Uh, what is in your background? People can't see it, but it looks like some very, very scary-looking lizard. That's uh, the scientific name is Molochoridus, which I think is probably the best scientific name in the world, but commonly known as the thorny devil, and it's a species of dragon found in arid Australia, and they are just the best. And they eat hundreds of ants in one sitting, so they're pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool stuff. Now, there was the big bird competition this week too. I, you you are not happy, I suspect. You were going for the pelican, weren't you? Yeah. Look, the fairy ran one, and look, fair enough. They are pretty cute and all, but the pelican is the discerning person's choice. So yep. No, I'm sorry. It was all about the gang-gang cockatoo. I'm gutted. Gang-gang has only came third. Interesting. I was still pushing out for, uh, for tawnies, um, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's interesting that, um, that, uh, that you and also backs Carlton. No, there, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, I have to say, I, when I saw the uh, the little wren getting through, I wasn't too uh, unhappy because I used to spend a lot of time down at the Organ Pipes National Park, and they are just they're everywhere yes. down there. They're just gorgeous. So beautiful little birds. Anyway, we digress from the news, Doctor Jen. Do you want to start us off? What's been big this week for you? I'd love to. Well, you know how sometimes you find a study and you read it and you think. Surely we already knew that. Surely that's absolutely (laughs) something we should have known for a long time. And you do a bit more reading and discover that actually we didn't really have good data on it previously. And I'm talking about diet and mental health in kids. Now, I know last week you talked a bit about healthy eating. And I kind of would have thought, you know, we know that eating healthily, particularly eating fruit and vegetables, we know how important that is for physical health. And I guess I just assumed that we had abundant studies showing links between healthy eating and and good mental health in kids but it turns out that we don't at least not as much as you might expect so a study just came out um 9,000 kids, it is in the UK rather than Australia, but 9,000 kids in 50 different schools um, aged 8 to 18. And so they assessed the kids' mental uh, well-being through a whole lot of standard measures. They also asked them standard things like, you know, how old are you, gender, health, living situation, asked them about any adverse experiences they'd had, whether they experienced any um, arguing or violence at home, whether they'd been bullied alongside, obviously, what did you eat? 
And uh, it turns out that in terms of nutrition, they found that the particularly um, secondary school kids, only about a quarter of them are eating the recommended uh, levels of fruit and vegetables. And about 30% of primary school kids were doing that. So that's five a day of fruit and vegetables. And they found that about one out of every 10 kids wasn't eating any fruit or vegetables at all. So quite a big range. But as you would expect, they did find out really strong uh, suggestions for improved mental well-being in kids mm. who were eating more fruit and vegetables. So they reckon kids who are eating um, five daily servings are about 8% higher in terms of kind of percentage scores for good mental health. Um, kids who didn't eat any breakfast at all were quite a bit lower. Uh, kids who ate an energy drink for breakfast, also pretty similar to if you didn't have any breakfast at all. Um, and the thing that I found really interesting was that having no breakfast or in some cases having no lunch was uh, basically had a similar detrimental effect on a kid's mental well-being as that child re- witnessing regular arguing or violence at home. Wow. So... Diet is actually really important. And I guess, yeah, like I said, I just assumed that that we knew this. And I, I'd be interested to see in Australia how similar it is. So in this study, out of 30 secondary school kids, you'd have about 21 of them who would eat a conventional breakfast, you know, a hot breakfast or toast or cereal or whatever. But there'd be at least four who would have had nothing to eat or drink before they mm. started morning classes and another three who would start afternoon classes having not not eaten or drunk anything. And if that's similar to here, which I don't know if it is, you just think, like, how are these kids managing to get through school? Mm. Pretty tough, hey? Yeah, it's, all, it's awful stuff. I think the, the other thing that um, we always should keep in mind is often these studies have been done in adults. And rarely yes, have they been exactly. done in children. So we usually have a lot of data. And this is probably why, as you say, Jen, you know, we think, wasn't this done before? And it's like, yeah, in adults, till the cows come home, we often do them in adults. But when you look at the extension yep. down to kids, especially young kids, um, and yep. some of these studies are a bit harder in kids, to be fair, but um, often they're not done yep. until much later. And that that can be a really big problem. So, yeah. Yeah, and we know that half of all mental health conditions start by the age of 14. Mm. So it's essential yep. that we know what's going on in kids. Absolutely. Chris KP, what do you got? I'd like to follow the, um, the the diet line, but in a slightly different way. Uh, so let me go backwards in time a bit for you. Let's, for argument's sake, say ten to twelve thousand years. Um, but let's keep a connection to the to the modern world as well. And I'm talking sloths here. Uh, and if you haven't, uh, if you're not familiar with sloths, then you haven't lived. They are just extraordinarily cool and. They get cooler when you look back in history. So we have, there are, I think there are six current species of sloth, and they're grouse. You know, they always defecate in the same place, which is just, you know, a level of retention <laughs> that I admire. They can swim extraordinarily well. They're never in a hurry. Um, they're, you know, they're just amazing creatures. But if you go back uh, historically, there were a lot more of them and a really diverse range as well, to the point where there was at least one species that was aquatic. Like they, they can swim quite well now, but these guys actually spend a lot of time in the water. Anyway, the point is that at that time, sort of the ten to 12,000 years ago zone, there's been this sort of dilemma uh, amongst paleoecologists because the bottom line is what it looked like is there's an imbalance in the system. It looked like there weren't enough predators for all these extraordinary range of, uh, of especially mammals out there. there. There just wasn't enough uh, carnivores eating them. And there may not even have been enough uh biomass as in plant matter for them to eat so this is this has been an ongoing question anyway some terribly clever scientists um uh, in, in mainly based out of the uh, american museum of natural history did something rather clever basically what they did is they figured they based based on the premise that you are what you eat 
that is what you're made of is what you've consumed, they went, okay, what do we know about what these animals consumed? And to cut a long story short, um, they were studying isotopes of nitrogen. So isotopes are just different forms of an element. And when you eat things, you can track what you've eaten by what's left inside you. They actually have hairs of giant sloths, sadly now. They're sadly no longer with us. And these are up to 2,000 kilos. This is a big-ass sloth. They're sadly no longer here. Um, they were looking at two particular species of extinct sloth. One of them they found, like all their modern-day counterparts, was vegetarian. Like, completely vegetarian. But the other one they found actually had uh, an isotope range suggesting that it didn't mind a nibble on some dead animals too. Mm. Now, they don't have the teeth to sort of hunt and kill. That really isn't how it works. But if it found something that was already a little bit dead and maybe really <laughs> easier to sort of chew up and swallow, apparently it was okay with that. I'm wondering so though with the sloth. scavenging omnivorous sloth. I'm wondering with the sloth though. A 2,000 kilo sloth just <laughs> lays down somewhere. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, rabbit. Um, <laughs> didn't have the teeth. Hey, that's a good call. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, and you know, would they, would, could they reasonably expect to have got much food that way? Because it's a big animal to feed. I mean, yeah, yeah that's look, a, that is a big animal. It's uh, surprisingly more common than people realise that herbivores eat meat. <laughs> so horses have been shown eating dead horses. Tree kangaroos have been observed catching and eating birds. You know, nice. so there's lots of examples of herbivores actually ch um, chowing down on meat if they get the chance. So like you said, in many cases, they can't catch it or kill it. But if there's something that's already dead, um, they will definitely get stuck into it. It's easy protein, as you probably know well, with your um, botanical knowledge, um, Chris. Plants are, plants are full of lots of nasty things and they're hard to digest. Yeah. Uh, protein in the form of meat is relatively easy to digest in many cases. So it's an easy meal. So herbivores will take it if they can get it. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good call. And I, I did wonder that when I was picturing this idea of a sloth sort of, you know, and this is unfair, lumbering through the jungle and just <laughs> nibbling on what it could find. I'd rather that than an actively carnivorous <laughs> predator sloth because that, you know, at three metres long is not yeah. something I'm interested in dealing with. Yeah. yeah. I want to see that movie, though, with the sloth and the, and the tiger. <laughs> The two thousand kilo sloth, age. you know, yeah, well, yeah just sort of like, say, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, Tiger, but I didn't mean to fall on you, but now you're lunch. <laughs> maybe, Chris, maybe that was the whole strategy. If you're that big, you don't need to kill anything else yourself. You just wait for someone else to do the hard work for yeah. you, and then as Roll you up. head into the kill, everyone else runs away because you're <laughs> so big, and you know, you don't want to be sat on by a two thousand kilo sloth, so they just run away and leave the kill. Yeah, it's a lot of sloth. Nice, you and what do you got for us? Look, I want to talk about uh, something that's, I think, it's a pretty serious topic, but a really important topic, and it's about a couple of words, really. One is um, the Anthropocene, which I'm sure many of us are aware of, um, and that's this epoch that, um, according to a group, um, began around the mid-20th century, and that's basically associated with what many refer to as the Great Acceleration. So think about, of course, Industrial Revolution and the impacts of humans on Earth. Now, that's fine in one sense but it's it's related to another word um and a paper that just came out in the proceedings of the national academy of sciences about the concept of wilderness so wilderness is a term that gets bandied around a lot and particularly in conservation and environmental literature and if you look up the word wilderness in the dictionary it will often refer to the absence of humans now that's actually flawed and uh incorrect and actually horribly destructive and so this paper actually steps through, and this was done by Michael Sean Fletcher, who's at the University of Melbourne, and his colleagues. 
And they looked at examples all around the world of how long people have been in environments, and this is Indigenous people, First Nations people and so forth, in different environments, whether it's in the Amazon, the deserts of Australia, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia and so forth, how long they've been in these areas and how much they've shaped these environments. You know, and, and of course, it's profound. So if you go to, you know, parts of the Amazon, you can actually see cultivated plants that have been there for thousands of years. Um, I'm sure many of you are probably aware of the, um, you know, the Nazca lines and the, and the rocks associated and drawings and things like that. So evidence of humans shaping the landscape have been around for a long time. But unfortunately, and certainly not rightly, I think it's fair to say that we look at um, the environment through very much a sort of a white mindset and a European mindset in many cases. And wilderness is this concept that if there's no humans in the landscape, that's actually good for the environment. And we should, to fix the environment, we need to be taking humans out of the environment. And this paper makes really important points. It's actually wrong. And in fact, what we need is humans in the landscape and humans doing what they've been doing for thousands of years in many cases, and that includes things like shaping environments through fire. So as an example, in the 1960s, when Aboriginal people were displaced from parts of Western Australia in the deserts, that led to larger and increasingly severe fires because that traditional way of managing the land through smaller fires and patchier fires was, was removed. So I think this is a really important piece of research and it's summarising the conversation if people want to see more about it. But I think it makes this really important point that this concept of wilderness really is unhelpful mm-hmm. and particularly the kind of associated thinking that we need to remove humans from the environment. Of course, we're part of it. We shape the environment. The environment shapes us. But I think this concept that has pervaded for a long time really isn't doing any of us any favours and particularly, of course, Indigenous and First Nations people who have been removed and in many cases prohibited from going back to what is of course their traditional lands and countries so i think it's a, it's a really important piece of research yeah and no, that's that that is I, I i haven't read the article yet but i saw it pop up the other day on on the conversation i think um the, the the missing word is some people, isn't it? I mean, you know, some of us should definitely be removed from the environment, and I think we could pull out a list pretty quickly of who <laughs> yeah. who they should be. Um, but you know, when, when we talk about some of you know some some indigenous populations around the world, we are talking about more than fifty or sixty thousand years in some of those right. locations. And mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. to, to be frank, if they weren't integrated well with their environment, they just wouldn't have survived. So you mm-hmm. know, you just no, no environment. The environment would collapse if the, they weren't an integrated yeah. part of it that was positive so i think that's a, there's some pretty clean proof there team uh thanks so much for news uh, we'll see you again uh soon i've got to talk to the other team you know my less favorite teams next week but you know i have my favorite team back on in a month um <laughs> great to see you it's lucky you're it's lucky you're tough shane oh look you know <laughs> you, you push through any way you can it's, uh, it's just the way it is folks we're going to take a break for some music and we will be back in just a moment with our first guest from the Australian National University. We're going to be talking about earthquakes. Apparently there was one recently in Melbourne, so I thought I might jump in there and see what's going on. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. We have on the line now Dr. Caroline Eakin. She is an ARC DECRA fellow and a senior lecturer at the Research School of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University in Canberra. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to have you on the show. Now, a, c- 
couple of weeks back, uh, Melbourne had what Melbourne does not usually have, um, or at least, you know, I mean, it wasn't quite in Melbourne, but we like to yeah. claim it because it was only a couple of, <laughs> couple of hours away in Mansfield. But we had quite a significant earthquake. Now, one of the pictures yeah. that I like to show, uh, you know, family and friends and anyone who will listen, frankly, is is sort of an overlay of two maps, one being the map of our tectonic plates around the, the world, and the second, a map of where all the earthquakes have occurred over the last 10 years. And you can sort of almost see that these things trace each other out. But we're in the middle of a tectonic plate, so what's going on? Why are we getting earthquakes <laughs> yeah. in the middle? Yeah, indeed. So, you know, the vast majority of earthquakes in the world, the biggest earthquakes in the world, occur on the plate boundaries. So places like New Zealand, Japan very often getting earthquakes. And Australia, most of us never think, really think that Australia gets earthquakes, but we actually do. Um, Australia gets on average around 100 magnitude 3 or more earthquakes every year. Mm-hmm. But unless they occur, occur near people, no one's ever going to feel them, so they don't get reported about. So what's happening um, in Australia is we're a very old continent, right? The Geological history of Australia stretches back billions of years. It's being pieced together from different blocks over different periods of time. So it's got lots of old faults and kind of like joints or sort of, you know, regions where different blocks have been fused together. So it's got all these sort of weak areas. And then it's sitting in the middle of this tectonic plate. And there's all this action happening on the plate boundaries around it. So along New Zealand, Mm. in the north, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia. And, you know, that's applying these forces and pressure and squeezing the Australian continent. So then these weak areas, these sort of old fault lines, when you have that pressure, those will be the areas that will kind of move and adjust um, to to these forces. So in general terms, that's what's happening. Um, and yeah, surprisingly to most people, Australia does get some earthquakes. Yeah, I think it's a, I'm interesting, of course, because now, now correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you looked at look at the Richter scale and you look at the difference in energy distribution, those magnitude three earthquakes, you'd need what thirty odd thousand of those to make up a magnitude six or something. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's a it's a big number, right? So um, yeah, so pretty much like every time you go up a magnitude level, you go up an order of magnitude, the number more earthquakes to represent mm. that. So if you have, you know, one, uh, you know, one magnitude four would be the same as like a hundred magnitude threes or something. So it kind of, it scales, it's on a logarithmic scale, yep. both the amount of energy released and the number of earthquakes. Yeah. To, um, it, when, when it comes to earthquakes and the one that happened recently um, near Melbourne, is it yeah. is it common, and, and I'm guessing this is all related to the structure of the land and so forth around the quakes and what we have between us, but, you know, that was felt as, as far away as Sydney and Hobart and South Australia. Is is that common in, in sort of the Australian landscape, given, given the way our land is put together and so forth? Uh, yeah, certainly um, in terms of it was very widely felt throughout um, Southeast Australia. Um, and given the size of the earthquake, that um, that is normal, kind of within mm. the expected level of, of shaking. It's very weak, obviously, um, once you're at the, the more distant cities. But certainly northern, um, you know, northern Tasmania, um, you know, all of Victoria, and just up to Sydney, or that, that was kind of just on the sort of limits of what I think people were able to feel, um, and even in Adelaide. And mm. but really, you're not going to feel that 
if you're in Adelaide or Sydney, you're not going to feel that everywhere. Mostly it's depending on the type of um, ground, first of all, that you're situated on and second, the type of building that you're in. So if you're on a high floor in a tall apartment block, for example, you're more likely to have felt it than if you were on, um, you know, hard rock on the ground. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating. I mean, in Australia, it's a, it's a big deal in Melbourne. We're all very excited when these things happen. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, I think there was one one small bit of damage to one building, which was filmed from 25 different angles, so it looked like half the city had fallen down. But I, I, <laughs> I had a great conversation with my wife because she's from uh, Northern California, and uh, she said it was the second weakest earthquake she'd ever experienced. So, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a bit deflated when she said that. It was like, oh. Um, <laughs> but, of course, you know, it's a, it's a much more interesting, uh, I guess, earthquake region of the world. Now, you're, you're working in – your, in your work, though, um, and I suppose it's funny when this happens, everyone sort of screams, we, we, you know, we need a seismologist. We need, you know, where are they all? And, and you guys have been hiding under rocks where it were from the media for, you know, 10 years prior. And then all of a sudden, you know, like when the Brisbane floods happened, everyone wanted a hydrologist. You become superstars overnight. Um, but you, yeah. Yeah, you, do a lot of, you do a lot of work on this normally. So you look at how plate tectonics actually work. I mean, what are we still looking at in terms of our knowledge there? Um, what, what's the sort of, you know, the, the new information we're looking for, plate tectonics, that you're working on? Um, well, with plate tectonics, I'd say, um, you know, we, in this day and age, we're able to make, um, you know, observe the surface so amazingly well, all these different data sets, you mm. know, from GPS, satellites, um, you know, getting all these surface measurements. But what I'm really interested in is those connections between the Earth's surface and the deeper interior. Um, so that's why as a seismologist we come in because seismic waves travel through the Earth and we can use those kind of like an, an X-ray or a CAT scan in medicine. How you would image the interior of the body, we can image the interior of the Earth and try to um, sort of understand what's happening deep beneath our feet. Um, now, the problem with that is that, you know, in medicine, you can have, you know, an even source, an even distribution of sources and receivers in an X-ray or CAT scan. But for the Earth, most of our seismometers we've put on land, right? But two-thirds mm. of the planet is water. Yep. We can, you know, this is sort of like, one of the frontiers is putting, trying to put seismometers into the oceans, but that is a lot more logistically difficult, a lot more expensive, a lot more risky. Um, so we've got an uneven distribution and we're trying to do our best and sort of a lot of the, the future of what we're trying to do is trying to better image the Earth's interior and make these connections between the deep Earth and the surface because it's what's happening down below that's kind of still a mystery to us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and and when I mean, sorry, the 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 technical you know difficulties with the ocean aspect must be extraordinary because how do you determine that the any sort of any sort of detection that is made there of movement is made as a result of the Earth moving or an earthquake as opposed to the water body nearby being the cause? How do you can you do that? Oh yeah, certainly. So I mean, an earthquake and, and seismic waves are um, you know, within a certain frequency range, um, they've, you know, an earthquake has a very um, characteristic pattern. So mm. there's no confusing that with, um, you know, waves or tides. Um, you know, sometimes there's a bit of overlap in the frequency, but they're a very different kind of pattern 
in mm. terms of the waves, yeah. Yeah. And what about yeah. just getting, I mean, how deep down do these things need to go? I'm, I'm guessing the deeper the bit, you know, the, the deeper areas of the ocean are probably even more interesting than shallow ones. So presumably getting getting these detectors down there and set up is a pretty substantial challenge. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, you know, the shallower you are, if you're on the continental shelf, for example, that's a very noisy environment. Mm. So you want to go deeper to the kind of, call it like the the abyssal plain or the the ocean floor um where it's going to be a lot quieter so that's you know the average ocean depth is like four thousand meters um so that's kind of you're looking at several thousand meters yeah um depth um so we have a, a project that i'm involved in um at the moment that actually has these we call them ocean bottom seismometers so sending these instruments to the bottom of the ocean um and that's out around macquarie island place called the Macquarie Ridge in the Southern Ocean. Um, so they're going to get picked up next month. Um, so that's going to be the exciting time. <laughs> Hopefully we get um, as many back as we can, but it is logistically challenging. And it is, you know, particularly in Southern Ocean, those waves are, oh my goodness. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's not easy, but this is kind of the frontier of trying to get more um yeah, more data, more observations about the the, the mm. inaccessible parts of our Earth. So. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier um, the scenario where, of course, we, we have, you know, a GPS system and, and constant monitoring of the Earth's surface from various satellites and so forth. And, and the resolution of that now is, you know, sub one metre, which is quite, you know, extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, what about, though, in this case, because, you know, what sort of resolution can you get and what sort of resolution do you need in order to make these sort of determinations of, I guess, the substructure of, of the Earth and, and what you're looking at? Yeah, so it depends on, this depends on how deep you're kind of looking. If you're talking about inside the Earth, um, so the deeper you go, then the, you know, roughly speaking, then your resolution gets mm. lower or you're seeing larger features. Um and again, depending on the the frequency that you're looking at. But yeah, probably in terms of the Earth's interior, we're talking about features in terms of like hundreds of kilometers scale. Right. Um, when we're making sort of images of the Earth's interior, um, something called um, tomography, um, I tend to think of that as kind of imagining you're looking through like a blurred window, like it's a steamy mm-hmm. window and you're looking at an image. That's kind of what you're seeing. Yep. <laughs> so you can certainly see large structures but yeah we're not seeing we're not seeing fine detail like we would be able to obviously image at the earth's surface yeah, yeah. no and, and caroline how did you get into this did you read you know journey to the center of the earth or something i mean i did that's kind of what got me into science some of these ob- i mean where did you start why did you <laughs> choose to do seismology um yeah so i was interested in the earth generally um when i was younger um and i went to study um, geophysics at university in London. And so I liked math and physics and I liked the earth and fine geophysics. Um, and then during my studies, there was an opportunity to go abroad in my third year. And I went to Berkeley in California and I lived like a hundred meters from the Hayward fault, which is mm. a branch of the San Andreas fault. And that's when I, and I started, um, you know, I did some projects, there um, in the department seismology lab at Berkeley and that's when yeah I just fell in love with seismology yeah look it's amazing stuff and I think if you've experienced um, some major earthquakes I mean it's just phenomenal the energy and and so forth I was I was in um, California back in when was it it must have been 
oh, somewhere between 94 and 98 when there was the big big earthquake there where a lot of the freeways collapsed and so forth. And I was there mm-hmm. at the time and felt that. And it oh, was, wow. it was um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, as, as an Australian who really had no education in terms of what to do with earthquakes, I was probably lucky <laughs> I came home. But, um, you know, it was one of, one of those scenarios where just getting, as a physicist, getting my head around the energy levels that were required to do what the earth was doing at that point was was quite phenomenal. Do, do you, I mean, have you been keeping up with what's happening with, you know, the monitoring of, of like the Mars quakes and, and, and the moon quakes and all that stuff as well? Is that, is that of interest as well? A, a little bit. We do we do talk about it at, at work and have some presentations and talk about it. It's not my particular focus at the moment, but yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, getting seismometers on Mars mm. was like a huge thing for seismology yeah. and for like another planet to be able, the fact that you're able to get a seismometer and measure Mars quakes means that for the first time, we'll be able to determine the interior structure of another planet, which is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where we can make all our guesses, but until you actually start seeing that, I just, I, I mean, it, it's great being talking to you because I, I love this idea of, you know, essentially like the ultrasound scenario where you're you're effectively using the natural earthquakes of, of the Earth, of the planet, um, to you know, to use as an imaging system, so that we can work out what's going on. And you know, I think uh, it must be extraordinary to just get some of that data back. Do, do you find um, just before we go? Do you find you're, you're sitting around sometimes waiting, thinking, "Geez, come on, we we need we need just a few small quakes to happen to to give us the data." I mean, you don't get data unless this happens, right? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, you know, the earthquakes are pretty reliable. You know, the, particularly we use a lot of the earthquakes in the plate boundaries. So, you know, those hap- those we kind of know when we put instruments out, we want to record for like a year, two years, and that will give us enough earthquakes to work with. Um, mm. But seismologists get pretty excited when there's a moderate or large ar- earthquake in an unusual place because that's a new data point. <laughs> yep. yep. I suppose you must know too when there's a significant quake, there's likely to be a series of, of quakes shortly thereafter as well, yeah? Yeah, the aftershocks. Yeah, so if there's a, you know, a moderate, a large earthquake, then there, the aftershocks decay over time. But mm. you will generally always get then events, many events that follow it. Yeah. Well, Caroline, great talking to you. Thanks so much for that beautiful explanation too of why we're getting quakes in the middle of our our plate here in um, in Australia. It's a, I haven't haven't heard it described that way before, but it seems pretty clear once you realise that we're such an old old piece of uh, land that's uh, been yanked together from various little pieces, and there's still cracks in the middle. Um, good luck with the ongoing work. It's it's fascinating. Good luck getting those um, those seismologists size, seismometers <laughs> into. I hope we don't lose any seismologists. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> They're, they're, they're still good to go. Although in the Southern Ocean, there is a chance, you know, it's pretty nasty down there. You've got to hang on tight. So uh, if, you're, yeah. if you're dropping things off the back of a boat, you might want to, want to strap yourself in. Yeah. Great, great talking to you. Uh, good luck with the ongoing work. And thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr. Caroline Eakin from the Research School of Earth, Science, of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with Gracie from Texas talking about some of the weird and wonderful creatures from the very, very deep ocean. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple That was uh, Steel with D'Uberville. And before that was Out the Door by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. On the line with me now, all the way from Texas, is Gracie Fingo. Good morning, Gracie. How are you going? I should say good evening on a Saturday evening for you, I think. Yes. 
Good evening. How are you, Shane? I'm good. I'm good. We're loving life down here in Melbourne. It's uh, actually we had some good weather yesterday. It looks like it's turning a bit crappy now, but <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's Melbourne in October. October. Sorry, folks, if you just heard that and it's news, I'm, I apologize. I just found out it was 2021. Uh, anyway, you're going to tell us a bit about some of the weird and wonderful things in the very deep ocean today, Gracie. Yes. So we're going to talk about some deep sea creatures. Um, and so first, I'm going to start by kind of classifying what is actually deep sea. What does that actually mean? Um, so it's anything, if you start from the surface and you go down, so it starts at 200 meters below the surface and then goes all the way thousands of meters down, basically as deep as you can go. Um, so the deepest place for context is called the Mariana Trench, and it's mm. over 11,000 meters deep, which is deeper than Mount Everest is tall yeah. for context. Yeah. Um, and so you've probably noticed there's kind of a lot of fascination around deep sea creatures because they're really weird, right? Mm. Um, and, and part of what makes them so weird is their environment. And so there are kind of these three unique qualities. So one, it's really cold with the exception of thermal vents. So the average temp is about four degrees Celsius or for my American friends, about 39 degrees Fahrenheit um, around that 200 meter mark. And then it just keeps getting colder from there. Um, second, it's also really dark. So no plants live there. Um, and then number three, it has really high pressure. So for every 10 meters of water that you go down, the pressure increases by one atmosphere. Mm. So 200 meters down means the pressure is 20 times greater there than at the surface. Um, and we as humans can only withstand about three to four atmospheres. So we can only go down about 30 to 40 meters um, which is why we still don't really know much about what lives there. Um, and we actually need a lot of specialized equipment. Um, and even today in 2021, we only have explored and charted about 5% of the Earth's oceans, which is kind of crazy. Mm. Um, and this cold, dark, kind of high-pressure environment dictates a lot of the adaptations that are required to survive there. Um, so because it's cold and dark, food is really scarce. So a lot of deep-sea creatures have really large mouths and no eyes, um, because it's so dark, they wouldn't be able to see anyway. And a lot have bioluminescence to lure and prey. And bioluminescence is kind of this natural ability of some plants and animals to create light through a chemical reaction in their bodies. Um, specifically, you may have heard of the, the molecule called luciferin. Um, and it basically reacts with oxygen to produce light. Um, and also... It can be difficult for animals to find partners to reproduce, so many of them are hermaphroditic, meaning that they can mate with any of their own species. Um, and then because of that high pressure, they also need to be made out of cartilage and low-density flesh. So if they had bony skeletons, they could easily be crushed by that pressure down in the deep sea. So they have uh, kind of this gelatinous uh, membrane kind of bodies. Um, and so we'll talk about some of them today specifically and some of those adaptations that I just talked about. Um, and we could, we could start with bioluminescence, I guess. So a lot mm. of people have heard of or seen animations of the anglerfish. Have you heard of the anglerfish? Yes. Is this the one with the light in front of its mouth to yes. bring prey yep. in and you think, oh, it's a nice little light. I'll go and have a look at that. Next thing you know, this giant mouth <laughs> takes a bite. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So they're really common, uh, or at least commonly depicted in movies and cartoons. Mm. Um, and it's just like you said, they kind of have like this fishing pole out of their head that is dark. And then what's called like a lure system. Um, kind of at the end, there's a little lure coming out of their head that dangles out in front um, of their mouths and lights up to kind of attract prey. And what's really interesting about anglerfish, though, is that their bioluminescence is a result of kind of the symbiotic relationship with the bacteria. 
And basically tiny glowing little bacterium called photobacterium live in the lure. So in the end of that anglerfish um, and exchange, the bacteria are protected and they get nutrients. Um, And some types of anglerfish can actually even wiggle that little lure at the end uh, to make (laughs) it look like a worm, to make it even more attractive, you know, to... To be able to get that price, uh, I which love is that. really cool. And uh, thank, thanks for you know not diminishing the fact that most of my knowledge comes from cartoons when we when we're talking about <laughs> this because it's I think about ninety percent of my deep sea knowledge does come from the octonauts and other cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And you know, what's really interesting about that is a lot of that is because we can't catch them in their own environment very easily, mm. right? So uh, a lot of that, I mean, it kind of almost has to be depicted as like an animation or a cartoon because otherwise you would probably never actually see it. Yep. Um, and so while we're actually on anglerfish, um, when scientists first discovered anglerfish, they were really confused because they were only finding females with some sort of like parasite attached to them. Um, and it turns out what they thought were parasites are actually the males. Um, <laughs> so the, the male actually bites onto the female and they essentially kind of fuse together. Um, and the male even shares part of the female's circulatory system once they're fused. Um, but the male is basically parasite the rest of their lives once they find a female. Um, and then they kind of occasionally give the female sperm so that she can impregnate herself. Um, but the whole thing kind of ensures a mate is always available mm-hmm. um, in that deep sea environment. It can be hard to come across, um, you know, others. And so um, I should also probably point out this isn't all anglerfish. Many other types of anglerfish don't do this, um, but some do, which is yeah. Really That's a real clingy relationship, huh? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Had to be said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also something that we haven't talked about yet is uh, bioluminescence can actually be used as camouflage. Um, so between that 200 meters and 1,000 meters, uh, a hatchet fish live. And they actually do this to evade detection from predator fish down below. So predator fish from below look up at the hatchet fish. Um, and basically look for their shadows in order to attack. Um, but the hatchet fish can camouflage them themselves by having kind of this bioluminescence along their bellies that match the color of the daylight above mm. uh, that completely hides them from that predator fish that's looking up, which is really cool. Um, yeah. Another thing is, have you ever heard of the barrel eye fish? That one I haven't heard of. Okay. I also hadn't heard of this one before. So they're about four inches long, brown fish. So kind of like a standard looking fish, except if you look at their faces, because their eyes actually look straight upwards out of the top of their head. So if we could do this, we would be looking up out of our hair or those of us that have hair um, out of the very top of our heads. Um, And then they can also rotate their eyes forwards. Um, So it looks very creepy. Um, Also, the tops of their heads are completely transparent. So you can actually see their eyes moving around in their heads. Um, if you haven't seen them before, again, these are called barrel eye fish. You should stop whatever you're doing right now, unless you're driving maybe, and Google them. Um, and a lot of what I'm talking about today uh, was actually discovered by the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, which is in California. Um, if you go to their website, you can actually find videos of a lot of the creatures um, that I talk about today, or you could just kind of put it into YouTube, and they have some rare footage of that, which is really cool. Hmm. It's it's amazing stuff. I mean, it's a, a the you know when you talk about the environment down there and how difficult it is to survive. It's amazing that anything has actually you know evolved to live down there. Full stop. But then when you yes. hear about these, you know, hard to mate, hard to see. You know, you just bumping into things. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. And speaking of, we were kind of talking about cartoons earlier. So the next creature that I have on the list is called the Dumbo octopus. 
Um, you could probably guess why. So it's named after that Disney movie of Dumbo, the elephant with the really big ears. Um, and the Dumbo octopus swims by flapping its kind of like ear fins. Mm. Um, most are about a foot long and only a few pounds. They're extremely cute. I personally think they kind of look like the little pink octopus uh, named Pearl in Finding Nemo, if you've seen Finding Nemo. Um, they're super cute. Um, and they're actually the deepest dwelling creatures I'm going to talk about today. Um, so they live between 4,000 and 7,000 meters deep, which is insane. Um, and Dumbo octopi can also make their skin transparent. And unlike other octopi, can actually swallow their food whole. Um, but not much is known about them other than that. Fascinating stuff. Mm. Yeah. And uh, the next one you probably have heard of. So the peacock mantis shrimp is next. So these are really colorful little shrimp um, that actually aren't shrimp at all. Um, and they can be anywhere from one to seven inches, but they're small but mighty. They could actually be their own episode. I'm not sure how much time we have left. About a minute. To keep going, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'll talk about their punches really fast. So uh, their punches can actually break through aquarium tanks. Um, and someone very specifically wrote online they could split open human thumbs. So I feel really bad for whoever had to find that out firsthand. <laughs> um, but we can we could pick this up. I have a few more creatures on the list. We'll pick it up next time. Yeah, that would be great to go through some more of these. I think it, it's just fascinating. There are so many to choose from, and they are so weird and wonderful. They honestly look like yes. they're from a different planet, but they're, they're amazing stuff. Yes. Gracie, great talking to you again. Um, we'll chat again in a few weeks' time, no doubt. Stay safe over there in uh, Texas and uh, have a good Saturday evening. Yes, sounds good. Thank you so much, Shane. Thanks, See Gracie. You soon. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements. After the break, uh, one of my old friends, Andrea Peace from the Bureau of Meteorology, is coming back on. But we're not going to be talking about weather. We are going to be talking about stillbirths. So just a little bit of a warning there that that will be the last 10 minutes of the show. We'll be back in just a, just a moment. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3 Triple R. On the line with us now is one of my old friends and an old member of the show, actually, Andrea Peace from the Bureau of Meteorology. Welcome back, Andrea. Great to see you. Thank you. It's been a long time. I know. I think, uh, you know, I think back to when we, we used to have you on the show and it was in the day, the dark days when people from the Bureau couldn't talk about climate change or the climate or anything. And all we could talk about oh, was sto no. storm clouds and, and rain. Um, and <laughs> oh, no. I, I Things have, have moved on, which is great. They have moved on. I still, you know, I still remember the term Southern Oscillation Index, which you taught me. Yes. Um, hadn't heard of that before, so I still know that that's the El Nino stuff and, you know, what's going on there. An, an embedded meteorologist. You always love that one. Uh, I still have the image of you in the tree. Um, embedded in the tree uh, during the bushfires and uh, folks there was a, there was a period where Andrea went out and was what was called an embedded meteorologist with all the fireys um, reporting on on the bushfires and I just had this weird image of her stuck in the tree but anyway uh, <laughs> that that aside we've got you on for a different reason today and we don't have a huge amount of time but tell us about your experience last year um, Andrea because this is something that is a very important message in particular with the the week coming up. Yeah, that's right. Um, thanks so much, firstly, for having me on to talk about um, this is a very special, um, important cause or important um, opportunity to waste, raise some awareness. So October is International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Um, and this Friday in particular is now recognised across Australia as Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. Um, so I didn't know that this day existed um, or month existed until just over a year ago um, when I suddenly 
experienced the tragic loss um, of my daughter Zoe. Um, I was 36 weeks pregnant. Um, I was in COVID just like this, I guess not quite as bad, but, um, and my pregnancy had been going quite well. Um, there'd been sort of nothing to worry about. Um, it was my second pregnancy. It was just going along very similar to the first. Um, I had my daughter Madison, who was two and a half years old. Um, and I'd been into the hospital for my 36 week appointment. It was only my second face-to-face appointment um, because of the COVID situation. Um, And the midwife said to me, just the average question that you get asked um, in your appointments, which is, and how the baby's movements. And I remember kind of hesitating a little bit um, and thinking, oh, actually, they have changed. Um, And Zoe had been an extremely active baby, Um, her favourite time of the day was about 2am in the morning um, and I had a lot of nights where I'd struggled to sleep (laughs) around that time Um, and yeah that morning I just remember thinking yeah things have changed Um, and I did say that to the midwife um, at the time and I remember saying oh you know she's been really active it's definitely slowed down Um, But I know around 36 weeks, that's pretty normal. Um, You know, babies don't have as much room. And and she kind of, the midwife kind of let me go at that point and didn't really sort of say anything, just said, oh, keep an eye on it. If it, you know, if you think it's changed anymore, just come back in. Um, And that was really all I thought about it. Um, And I remember going home that day and um, I had Madison at home um, because it was COVID and, You know, I just went about my business and I really didn't give too much thought about it again, unfortunately. Um, And then that night, lying in bed, got to 2am, really wasn't much happening. And I remember thinking, something just doesn't feel right here. Um, And the next morning, same thing, I woke up and, and, you know, you think, oh, everything's fine. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I've had friends who have said, oh, yeah, I remember my baby's movements changed and I went in and everything was fine and so that was kind of what happened and the last thing I kind of had to do you know I was 36 weeks the last thing I hadn't done was pack my bag for the hospital and I said to my husband that morning oh I think I'm I think I need to go into the hospital I'm going to pack a bag and I'm going to pack a bag for Madison in case she needs to go to my mum's um and And he drove me into the hospital and we said goodbye and we thought everything was going to be fine and I got in there and um, I could still feel her and they did a scan and they no one seemed worried. Um, and then all of a sudden everything changed when they went to put the monitoring on her um, and they basically couldn't get a heartbeat. And everything really for me went from fine to not fine in a matter of seconds. Um, and they rushed me for an emergency C-section um, and Zoe was born... Um, blue. Um, she was resuscitated after five minutes, um, but obviously had quite a, a bit of brain damage um, and uh, turns out some other complications as well. Um, so she was alive, kept alive by um, machines for nearly a day. Yep. Um, but we tragically had to make the decision to turn off her life support. Um, and you know, you, you have people in your lives, you know that people have miscarriages and, and people have stillbirth, but until you're experiencing it, 
yourself, you just are not aware of just how prevalent it is. So that's really why um, a a year on, I'm at a point where I can talk about it and I just really want to raise awareness because I I had no idea about this, but every year um, 110,000 Australians have a miscarriage, 2,200 babies are born still. That's six babies every day in Mm. Australia. And that's one of the highest rates of stillbirth in the developed world. Um, And 600 lose their baby in the first 28 days um, after birth. Um, And so that for us is where we sit. Zoe technically wasn't stillborn. Um, But, you know, and and look, not all stillbirth is preventable, um, but there are things that that we can do to help reduce the risk of stillbirth. Yeah. So, Andrew, we've only got a, a minute or so left, but what, what should um, women do in these circumstances? And you mentioned a, a bit of a change that you notice, but what, what's your advice? Yeah, so um, there's some amazing organisations, uh, Red Nose, the Stillbirth Foundation, so really recommending that women um, in pregnancy stop smoking and avoid secondhand mm-hmm. smoke. Um, sleep on your side, particularly after 28 weeks gestation. I have had lots of pillows to, yep. <laughs> to stop me from going on my back um, and know your baby's movements. And if they change in any way, do not hesitate to go in and see your maternal health team. Just don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't think, I'll have a glass of water. I'll wait for the baby to wake up. Just go. Yep. Just don't don't wait. Yep. Well, look, uh, Andrea. First of all, you know, uh, devastatingly, you know, news there for you. Um, as someone, you know, I know. Um, when I, I read, I saw your video. It was uh, shocking to see that, and very sorry to see that that's happened. Um, incredible that you you are coming out and doing this after just a year. It's it's, it's it must be incredibly difficult, but I know how important it is, and I know for you as one of the literally the best communicators. I've come across in in thirty years of doing this show. Um, you are you are the person who can get this message out, and I'm I'm thrilled that you've been able to do that with us today. And you know, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. Um, I'm sure that you know a lot of women will benefit from you doing that. And you know, reach out to us; we will help anytime you like. Thank you, thank you so much for the opportunity. As I said, and I think it is extremely important um, for people to be aware because, like I was, so unaware just one year ago. Yeah, thank you, Andrea, folks. That was Andrea Peace from the Bureau of Meteorology talking about an incredibly important topic and one that we don't talk about enough because we often think that miscarriages don't occur as often as they do. But when you hear some of those numbers, you realise that they're incredibly common and many um, potentially are preventable. Not all, but many are. Folks, I'm going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. Uh, they are going to do a fine show for you. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. We are about. Uh, a few weeks away, actually, from um, the Webb Telescope launching on the 18th of December, which is pretty exciting. For those who, who've been listening to the show for a while would realise that I've been hoping for this for quite a few years. This will be the replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope, which has, you know, managed to crawl across the line in, in the last year or so and is still producing data. But Webb will be a whole different beast. So we'll be talking a lot more about that in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, you also have supported us through the Radiothon, which we appreciate, and we'll hand over now to the great team from Edith. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.